arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Listen to the heartbeat. Jones's dating is about to get steamy. Very early in episode four, Jones gets hoodwinked by Pia and then ventures to Club Max. Later we shall hear an important clue concerning Maynard, and it could be linked to the slasher murders. And Lester Larson finally materializes in Hamilton. Jones clashes with the arrogant Guns Pearson. Just as Jones hangs up from talking to Lark Larson on a worldwide cruise, the slasher contacts Jones again. Later on in the episode, Jones begins to decipher the slasher's use of the play. Let's mosey on over to Jones and his date, the ex-model Pia. Episode 4 of the Prince William Slasher by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 13. The Colonial House Restaurant, Hamilton, New Hampshire. Jones needed more information from Pia about the running of the Alouette Boutique, which might help him with Devereaux's murder, but she called him first. His heart beat faster just at the sound of her whispers and accentuated words. I love your voice, Matthias. Have that effect on me. Maybe it's because you're someone in charge. It sizzles. Now look, Pia, I need to talk seriously with you. I was hoping you would, babe, she whispered. I think you know more about Darlene's lover. Maynard Hall was her lover, Pia. He had never heard her laugh, but she continued for some time. (laughs) She denied knowing Maynard was involved with Devereaux. That was amusing, Matthias. I don't think so. Why are you dropping all that info now? And mentioning the white tape? Be a loving. Let's not talk about what's changed in my life, the loss of my friend. Tonight, the opera will take all our troubles and cares away. Join me. I suppose I could, said Jones, looking for an opportunity to further question her, and he was attracted to her. Sure. Jones waited on the sidewalk in front of the Colonial House. Pia had bamboozled him into the Prince William Opera House that evening. He did not even own a tux. Maybe Pia knew more about Devereaux's death. Gallagher pulled curbside in an oversized black Lincoln. Cars and a few trucks occasionally passed by. The window came down. You look as though you're a million miles away, Matthias. Maybe I am. Gallagher steered from the open window. What's the matter? Oh, I was just invited to the opera tonight. Well, that's good. Right. I know nothing about opera, and I am going to find out more about Darlene Devereaux. Pia said Gallagher, and then he abruptly parked the Lincoln. Almost instantaneously, he pushed open the driver's door. He pointed his finger at Jones. Jezebel, don't you know about that story in First Kings? Look, Father, I'm just a little nervous. Jones grinned as they stood on the curb. You should be. That woman is very adept in the art of seduction. Jones grinned as they stood on the curb. Father, I think she knows more about the murder. Trust me, she knows more about a lot of things. Plus, why would she hold back information? That is a very poignant question. Is she protecting anybody? Gallagher held the restaurant door. 
Has she come on to you? Well, sort of. Gallagher's blue eyes moved upward. Let's just say I know of that woman's reputation. She would never be a trustee of Hamilton College if she didn't buy her way in. Jones chuckled before he spoke. The way to Hamilton Fletcher is through his wallet. Exactly, said Gallagher as they stepped inside. I have a question, said Jones up front. Where's Donnelly's chocolates? Ah, I'm shut off from Donnelly's. What do you mean? I love that place. It's all homemade. Genevieve warned Karen Donnelly and Millicent to call her if I showed up. It's on the parkway. Jones looked at the small hometown crowd in the restaurant. Wherever that is, one of the connections to the bridge. Franny turned with a big smile as Jones and Gallagher merged into the restaurant. Could it be the man who broke Lark Larson's record for consecutive wins? You're kidding, Franny. Did I? Sounds plausible, doesn't it? Hello, Father. Franny, how's the uh, pancake situation this morning? Large or small? Large and load them up, said Gallagher. I've got the booth cleared down back, Matthias. Thanks, Franny. As they started between the tables, many of the people in the booths waved to Jones and congratulated him on the team. Once in the booth, Jones slid around in the seat. Now, Father, what slasher theories did you dream about last night? Gallagher had a glum look. How did the slasher know that you'd be at St. Bart's? Doesn't that narrow it down to your circle of people? Unless I was being followed, and that's true. By the way, Jimmy's mother has given Jimmy permission to tour the college next week. Great. I'll arrange things on my end. To his left, George Strickland removed his hat as he entered the restaurant. He waved to Jones and headed down back. Jimmy needs some tutoring, said Gallagher. Sometimes attitude makes a big difference, Jim. Father, said Strickland. George, here on police business, asked Gallagher. As a matter of fact, I am. I can use the restroom, said Gallagher. Jones slid out of the booth. No, Jim, I'm sure George will only be a minute. They took a half a dozen steps down to another booth as Franny brought the coffees. Coffee, Chief? I'm fine, thank you. What have you got, George? Two things, he said, slipping a key on a string into Jones's hand. The boutique, that's the first. The second is that I called Pearson about your Boris leaving Crosstown Motors. What did he say? He claimed he had already looked into it, and they think Punch is lying. Why? Because they want the case to go away. Did Hamilton Fletcher shut this down? Strickland shook his head. It's possible, but let's not go blaming Hamilton without proof. He has no connection to the boutique. I know. I'll check out the boutique when I leave. You better get a flashlight. There's no power, and it's pretty boarded up and back. Do you know where I can get a tux quick, George? Tux? I'm going to the opera tonight. Strickland squinted. Pia. How does everyone know this? Wendell heard something. Unbelievable. As to Pia, be careful. She's in another league from us mortal men. I'm just going to the opera, George. What is she, Wonder Woman? I think she is. Plus, Hamilton hates scandals. Scandals? I'll be careful, George. I have an ulterior motive. She knew Darlene, and she knew how that boutique operated. Maybe I can pick up additional info. Strickland's dark eyes opened wide. You can call the Englewood Company. They supply tuxes for the proms and dances. Okay, I'll talk to you later tonight. Thanks, George.
Gallagher held the flashlight once they were in the boutique's cold, still air. The area had a musty chemical smell. Where was the woman killed? asked Gallagher. In the back room. One woman down the street, Angela Lopez, heard a scream. Jones pulled back a white drape. But more important, Lopez heard a scooter that night. This place gives one a weird feeling, you know, because of the murder. Jones nodded. The back room was larger than he thought, with empty shelving all the way to the corrugated roof. To the left was a long workbench with overhead fluorescent lights with no power. A small door and a larger garage door filled the wall beyond the bench. There's no way of knowing about the tape she used in shipping. Pia said it was white, but everything has been cleaned out of here. Looks like a cutting table, said Gallagher. Jones felt the striations on the plastic top. I agree, but that doesn't mean the lady was killed with something from the boutique. On the other hand, it could. This isn't even in the report. What did the report say? Just mentioned that Darlene Deverno was murdered on the concrete in the back room. Surprised Strickland would do such slipshod work. George did the best he could. Jones did not let Gallagher know about the FBI pressure. He opened the side door to a dock, and the light burst into the back room. From this vantage point, the rear of the athletic shed was directly along the grass and the gymnasium and the office beyond. That shed where Lester housed the scooter is less than 100 yards from here. Are you saying Lark Larson's son killed this woman? No, I'm saying he very likely could have been in the proximity of the boutique that night. You could never prove that, said Gallagher. Unfortunately, that's exactly true, Father. Late morning, Gallagher drove Jones to Prince William. Via the Shore Road extension, which became packed dirt, surrounded by beach grass, a few miles from the Hamilton line. It's another 15 minutes along the shore, not good on the car, but the view of Hamilton Bay is extraordinary. I thought there was only one way to get to Prince William. This is the scenic view. They emerged 20 minutes later by an extensive cemetery in Prince William. Near the Crosstown Bridge off the parkway, an oversized display of candy nuggets drew the attention of passerby. The house, white and freshly painted with blue shutters, had a parking lot behind the building. A diagonal sign marked Donnelly's was placed on the second floor of both sides of the house. Feel like I'm committing a sin when I pull into the parking lot, said Gallagher. Mortal or venal? asked Jones. Both. Matthias, you can smell the chocolates before you even set foot inside. I need to get the records of Darlene Davino's love interest sending chocolates to her. Donnelly's may not give out that information, said Gallagher as he stepped out of the car. Are you making light of my chocolate addiction? Jones laughed. Jim, we're not talking about medical records here. Or classified military information, said Jones. They climbed the steps near the humongous facade of chocolates. So, this man you call Boris played to Darlene's sweet tooth. Where'd you get this information? I'd rather not say. How come the police don't know this? Asked Gallagher as he opened the door for Jones, jingling the brass bells. The inner ear was cool. I'd rather not say that either. That's okay. I understand the importance of confidentiality. Well, hello, Father Gallagher, said the strawberry blonde about Gallagher's age from behind the counter. Your cover is blown, Father. Good afternoon, Millicent. She gave Gallagher a cutesy smile. Here from some of those chocolate-covered almonds? Possibility. You know how Genevieve likes chocolate almonds. 
Ah, oh, Genevieve, yes, of course, Father. By the way, this is Matthias Jones, the new coach at Hamilton College. Coach? You have a ton of chocolate here, Millicent. It smells great. We do. What can I get for you? Information about a customer. If I can help. Darlene Deverno had an admirer who bought her chocolate. She shook her head. Oh, if that took place, I wouldn't know about it. Not that Darlene didn't buy candy or have it delivered. But nobody sent chocolates. I would have to check past transactions. Tell you what. I'd like to send a box of candy to all my players' mothers in May at Mother's Day. Heavens to Murgatroyd, she said, raising her dark eyebrows. Sounds like a lot of chocolate. Tis, said Jones, handing her one of his new cards. Call me any time. For now, I will have a box of your best chocolates. It's $225. Ha <laughs> ha! Heavens to Murgatroyd, said Jones. A little less? $75? She'll love it. Sold. Gallagher pulled Jones over to the white chocolate. Dear God, Matthias, chocolates for that woman, said Gallagher. I would be careful. She'll run up the tab. I'm not one to spread rumors, but no, of course not, Father. But she leads a very risque and expensive lifestyle, he said as he whispered. Lots of men. Father, how can I get into trouble at the opera? Gallagher crossed his arms and looked down at Jones. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Jones entered the empty Club Max mid-afternoon. He heard Coco's voice before he saw him. Yeah, we'll do that. Just get him out of here. Right, and get more stuff for the night. Told you to get rid of that rental van, Jonesy. Coco, wearing a rock t-shirt and jeans, leaned in from the side office. Thanks, Bernie. I need a tux. You what? Asked Coco, squinting as he moved in front of the dartboards. What do you, got a hot day, Jonesy? As a matter of fact, I do. Oh, yeah? Asked Coco, lighting a cigarette. Meet a babe professor, did you? Not exactly. I could get you a tux, he said, taking out his phone. He scrolled down and connected. Yeah, common. I need you to come over to the club and fit somebody for a tux. No, common. Next Christmas. Get over here now. Thanks, said Jones. Common looks like he can't tell time, but he's the best tailor in Prince William. Then he stepped toward Jones. Where you going that you need a tux? The opera. Hey, I like the opera. You do? He headed toward the bar. Don't judge me by what goes on in here, Jonesy. So who's the chick? Pia. Coco stopped with his back to Jones. Then he slowly turned. Jonesy, maybe you didn't hear what I said about that chick. I heard. She'll leave you spinning. Once upon a time, she had a modeling career in New York. And somehow she has buku money. Oh, I understand her attraction, Jonesy. Believe me, I do. Did you go out with her? She was in the club a few times. I can read people. She's a very sophisticated liar and a money grubber. And I don't like chicks that are full of themselves. It's just a night at the opera. What is this, the Mox Brothers? You go have your night on the town, Jonesy, and whatever else if you can handle it. I'll help you because you're my friend, and that's why I'm telling you to cancel your trip to paradise. I'm a big boy. Right, <laughs> he said as he headed for his rear office behind the folding doors. Jones's phone rang. Matthias Jones. Jones, this is Hamilton Fletcher. Mr. Fletcher. I heard from Mill 
Bilt Abrams that you're looking at the old Collins house. Well, I did take a tour. Good, good. Always take the proactive approach, I say. I'm sending my man from the plant, Prince William, to perform a home inspection. Remember, Collins was out of action for a long time. Plus, I wouldn't tell this to Milt, but it will give you a better bargaining point if we can chisel him down. Well, I appreciate it. Not a problem. Keep up your winning way. Yes, sir. And by the way, are you having any break-ins at the gym? I think so, Mr. Fletcher. I'll fill you in later, after I make a phone call. Jones stared at the phone when the silence came. What are you talking to you, honey pie? Hamilton Fletcher, you know he never says goodbye. He doesn't have to. The old man doesn't bow to no one. Listen, I just called Roger at Godzilla Rentals. You'll have a new beamer until the pumpkin coach comes in at midnight. Jones kept thinking about Pierre being out of his league as he circled his eyes around the ornate gold cornices and pillars. Next to him, Pia sat as if she were royalty in a fur stole and a flowing ivory evening dress. Jones had appeared at the Cherokee in the BMW, only to learn that Pia had ordered a limo. In the limo, when he presented the $75 box of Donnelly's chocolates, Pia lackadaisically flung the box into a pouch behind the seat. Then she segued into talking about traveling to Naples. Jones, just to be sociable, said the limo was a good idea. She agreed and thanked him for paying for it. He let that pass, but found himself growing furious when she again thanked him for dinner at the Nuevo Benvenuto. At least she had purchased the opera tickets. When they ascended the angled stairs and entered the lobby, three couples immediately greeted her. Somebody mentioned the Prince William Social League donation, and Jones was out another $200. Pia locked her arm around his elbow when they were seated up front. Jones studied the program. Don Giovanni, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's been a few years since I, uh, well, it was actually commissioned after Mozart's sojourn to Prague in early 1787. I think Don Juan should be a woman. Interesting. Father Gallagher, wearing a black tuxedo, accompanied by his housekeeper, entered the opera house. No doubt he would not only be listening to opera, but watching Jones. Why are you here, Jim? asked Jones as he moved his lips. Jones read his lips. I like opera. Unbelievable. What's the matter, love? asked Pierre, again locking her arms around Jones's elbow. I just saw somebody I know. Pierre seemed to talk through him. You'll have to introduce me later. Sure, I'd be glad to. He contorted his face at Gallagher. The priest smiled and raised his program up to his eyes. As the opera began, Pierre whispered in his ear, Pay attention, I have plans for you later. Jones smiled and she squeezed his thigh. As he turned, Coco and a stunning raven-haired woman were positioned three rows back. Coco motioned with his index finger for Jones to turn around. Wow. Yes, that describes Mozart. Jones, not a maestro, enjoyed the ensemble of woodwinds, horns, trumpets, and trombones. Pia repeatedly rubbed his knee as the string section took over. While Pia continued her seduction, Jones alternated glances between Gallagher and Coco. I'm aware that you haven't been exposed to this, love, said Pierre. Not knowing something is just not having learned it yet. In act two, 
Giovanni will play the mandolin accompanied by pizzicato strings. Oh, of course. In the same act, love, two of the commentator's interventions are accompanied by clarinets, bassoons, and trombones, with cellos and basses playing from the strings section. Wonderful, said Jones, growing annoyed. Yet he was enthralled by the performance. But Pia's arrogance and superiority slowly unraveled his patience. Gallagher and his housekeeper fixated on the opera. When it was over, Jones and Pia inched up the aisle. Coco slowly shook his head near the entrance as he guided the tall woman with the long hair into the lobby. You may call for the limo, said Pia. I have to use the men's room if you'll excuse me. Of course. As Jones veered left toward the wood frame door, Coco said something to the tall woman. Then he headed across the lobby tiles. When he entered the men's room, Jones was already at the hopper. Coco stepped into the next stall. How much did she take you for it, Jonesy? Jones looked to his right. I figure a grand, maybe more. Ah, that's not bad. The evening is young. Not bad, yelled Jones as he zipped up his fly. This woman throws money around like she's throwing crumbs to seagulls. Yeah, your money. Jones washed his hands. It's like she's plotting all the time. I feel like I've been stalked. That's because you have been stalked. That's what she does, Jonesy. She's a viper. And then Gallagher shows up like I need a chaperone. Coco joined him at the sink. Maybe you do. Gallagher likes you and he sees right through Pierre because one of his parishioners got taken. I should have listened to you guys, but... But she seduced you. I get it, Jonesy. Just drop her off and come over the club before you go broke. Okay. Galga strode up to the sink. Well, praise the Lord. Oh, here comes my chaperone. No, I'm your guardian angel, said Gallagher. You need to stay away from that woman. I told him about Johnny Souza, father. Oh, she ruined his marriage, Matthias. I'm not married. Yet said Coco. She could probably rope you into that, too. I get it. Okay, okay. Do you need to go to confession, Matthias? asked Gallagher in a lower voice. No, father, I don't need to go to confession. <laughs> what about me? asked Coco. Well, I know you do, but we're not doing a confession in here. All right, listen, I'm going to get out to the limo. What limo? asked Coco as Jones walked toward the lobby door. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Jones heard Coco from behind as he entered the lobby. Hey, where's the beamer? One of the ushers approached Jones. Mr. Jones, Miss Negricio is waiting in the limousine out front. Figures, said Jones. The limo, engine running, was parked in the fire lane directly at the bottom of the stairs. Losing money would not matter if you had just gained some insight into Devereaux's murder. The chauffeur opened the rear door. Pierre already had wine glasses filled from the limo bar. How nice of you to join me, love, she said with a subtle laugh. Jones stared at her as she handed the wine glass to him. Just how did you meet Darlene Devereaux? She lifted the glass to her lips. At the boutique, of course. The driver shut the door. So you were a long-term customer? Yes, for at least three years. I've been in the area for five years. The limo started down the boulevard. She sipped the wine as she leaned toward him. New York? Denver, Los Angeles, Houston. You've had quite the career. I have. But where are you from? Los Angeles, a city called Casa de Sol. It's a beach community. It's nice in California. Why did you leave? Modeling career. Parents still there? asked Jones. 
Pierre shook her head. They're both gone. Mine too. Brings you to this little corner of the world, Pierre. For a few seconds, she just looked at him. If you must know my personal business, I own the Cherokee and I operate my business empire out of the Cherokee because of a tax break from Vinnie Picada. I have cosmetics, fine clothing, and a whole line of outdoor sports. Oh, so you know the mayor. I met the mayor and his wife in New York. I was complaining about taxes when the mayor suggested I bring my operation to New Hampshire. I saved thousands. She leaned forward and clinked his wine glass. I guess New Hampshire agrees with me, Mr. Jones. You know the motto, live free or die. Jones was moving into a zone he preferred to avoid as the limo followed a direct line to the Cherokee. Even when he mentioned going back to Hamilton, Pia was unfazed about bringing him up to her suite. Jones figured he could talk his way out of any sketchy situation upstairs. On the way up in a private elevator, she opened her fur coat and rubbed her silky dress over his tux as she kissed him. Her green eyes sparkled as they broke the kiss. She took Jones's hand and led him inside. Let me entertain you, darling. Jones, tuxedo draped over the sofa, paced the front room. He had not learned anything new and was out a large chunk of money that he would never see again. Gallagher and Coco had demonstrated loyalty for his being in New Hampshire for just a short time. Pia, like the main act in a theater, sauntered out of the bedroom topless, just in dark panties and lace garter belts. A series of crosses formed a tattoo pattern above her ample right breast. I can see you have plans, Pia. You like? Yeah. But don't you believe in getting to know somebody? Asked Jones, his heart racing. No, she said, her lips moist as she came closer. I believe in what's due me, personally and in business. The rest is window dressing. And then you go for it. She leaped and swung her locked bare legs around Jones at the waist. Jones hoisted her upward and set her back on the plush rug. Did I answer your question? What makes you think you'd do me, Pierre? You don't even know who you're with. So? The slasher case and his lost money sent Jones into a tirade. You money-grubbing little tramp. I think you're just plain scared. Don't insult me, Pierre. Jones shook his head. So what was it like to grow up in Southern California? Have a boyfriend as a kid? As a matter of fact, I did. Several. Years ago. What the hell is this? You have a normal childhood? She spun around. The doors opened and Jones looked into her suite. You nosy son of a bitch. What do you care about my childhood? You just don't get me, Pia, because you think I'm something that's due you. You just can't handle me. You must have a steady girl. I was prepared to give to you. You can just forget it. You get nothing. I don't want anything. Maybe it would have been good to check with me before you started your routine. Oh, go to hell. She slammed the bedroom door. Jones grabbed his tux jacket and stomped to the main door. When he was in the hall, he turned for a second. Jezebel. Chapter 14. Club Max, Prince William, New Hampshire. Jones held a full margarita glass at the bar. At midnight, the music blasted and the dance floor was filled. During the last hour, walking to Club Max, Jones had gotten more incensed than he could ever remember. Coco should be back in a few minutes, said Bruno as he filled a beer stein from the tap. Jones nodded. Thanks, Bruno. I could call him. No, I'll wait. 
Jones watched Junior at the dartboard. He picked up the margarita and stepped between tables. Junior was like an extra-large, genetically altered human prototype. Junior! Jones, you looking for a game? Maybe later. Heard you were out with Pierre. Don't go there, Junior. No problem. Hey, Junior, what do you know about the play? Last guest, kickoff return, Stanford in California, Saturday, November 20th, 1982. Stanford ahead with a 2019 lead on a field goal with four seconds left. Right, said Jones. It was unique, correct? Oh, shit, yeah. Cal used five lateral passes for that kickoff return. Could have been illegal passes, but who the hell knows? Jones smiled. Can you replay that in your head? Yeah, sure. Kevin Moen gets the ball on his own 45. Scrambles and then laterals left to Rogers. Rogers is about to get crushed. Chucks the ball behind him to Dwight Gardner. Still at the 45. He gets five yards, and as he's going down, he loops it back to Rogers. Garner thought he had been nailed and the game was over. The whole Stanford band ran like turkeys onto the field. But Rogers was now at midfield near four of his teammates. Now he's at the Stanford 45. Passes the ball to Marriott Ford, who's moving like hell. The Stanford band, all 144 members, were in the end zone. At the Stanford 27, three Stanford players drill Ford, but the bastard, still tumbling ahead, whips the ball over his right shoulder. Friggin' Moen grabs the ball at the 25 and barrel asses into the end zone, knocking over one of the band guys. Cal wins. Incredible, Junior. I have a ridiculous memory. The whole thing sounds impossible, because it is. Coco, in his leather coat, looked around from the side door. When he saw Jones, he quickly moved toward the dartboards. Then he yanked Jones to a raised booth away from the main area. Jonesy, where the hell have you been? Jones's anger would not let him speak. Then Coco sniffed Jones's shirt. Crystal diamonds. Oh, I get it. She got you upstairs at the Cherokee. I went out with her to find out information on Deverno, and this woman tries to take over my life and bankrupt my wallet. She wants to run it all. Coco motioned with two fingers to the waitress outside the dart area. Did you, uh, you know, with her? First of all, I dropped 1300 bucks tonight. Coco pushed his teeth together. We can get that money back, Jonesy. How? Don't worry about it. That's not it. Woman assumes that she's it. The waitress brought the two beers. I have a margarita somewhere. Forget the margarita. Have the beer. You don't have to tell me the details, bro. Somehow she got me upstairs. She's a black widow, man. She walks from the bedroom with curves, crevices, and all the right things in all the right places. Whoa! Some sort of tattoo on her chest. Little crosses. Gallagher wouldn't like that one. Coco laughed. Gallagher wouldn't like any of it, Jonesy. Jones lifted the beer to his mouth. Then he smacked his lips. Coco, you know I'm a guy who prides himself in being in control of myself, my team. Jonesy, stop patting yourself on the back. What else happened? She leaps up and wraps her legs around me. Whoa. I told her that she was a little money-grubbing tramp. No shit. I asked her about her past, and she freaked out and tells me to go to hell. Good for you, Jonesy. Coco lit a cigarette. So you left. 
Yeah, I left. She was screaming. You can't handle me. You must have a steady girl. We'll get the money for you. Wait, could that tattoo be little stitches? Her? Coco clenched his fists. His dark eyes blended into his pupils. Jonesy, I pegged this woman as a lot of things, but not a killer. Maybe she's the slasher. Then why would she let you see those stitches? She knows you're on this case. So forget your little side road theory. She wanted to see if I flinched or said anything, and I didn't. She waited to see how much I knew. That's what that seduction act was all about. She wanted more than your reactions, Hotshot. Maybe. Let me get this straight. You're saying that she killed Devernow? Here's my theory. She swung the razor inward and sliced herself in the parking lot by accident. The blood went down Holly's dress. Well, if that's true, Jonesy, Pia must have been treated at the PW Medical's ER. Oh, blood. I hope I'm wrong. Well, I hope you're wrong, too, because she could be deadly again. Jones slowly opened his eyes. His head ached mostly behind his right eye and temple. Above him were tiles, and for a few moments, he did not realize he was inside Coco's office at Club Max. Someone had placed an Indian patterned blanket across his body. He sat up on two fluffy orange pillows. The blinds were drawn, but sunlight leaked around the edges between the blinds. Jones stood and rubbed his crusty eyes. The last thing he remembered was throwing darts with Junior sometime after midnight. He walked into the bathroom and splashed the cold water on his face. As he wiped away the droplets, the circles were deep under his eyes. His thoughts bounced back to the topless Pia sauntering out of the bedroom. He had a game later that night and needed to get back to Hamilton to finish preparation. A red light flashed on his phone screen. He had missed a voicemail sometime during the night. This is Millicent McGuire. I have answers for the mystery chocolates. Jones raised his brow. Ms. Devernell received numerous shipments from... Come on, Millicent, said Jones, staring at the phone. What's the mystery? The Prince William Credit Union. What? Prince William Credit Union? It's true, said the recording. I have all the shipping logs. Hope this helps. Jones fell back to the sofa. His slasher theory now had a dual component. Maynard Hall. He gripped the phone and shook his head. Maynard Hall? You're talking to yourself, Jonesy, said Coco at the door. I guess I am. He stood and put his phone in his pocket. Maynard Hall. Man likes to think his family still has money. The guy's no more than a pencil pusher at the bank. Well, that pencil pusher repeatedly sent chocolates to Devereaux. Coco gave a quick nod. Wait, wasn't it Pia that told you about Devereaux getting Donnelly's chocolates? Right. I think she knew about Maynard Hall and Devereaux all along. I don't trust her. Jones scrolled to Strickland's number. Unless somebody else at the credit union sent her the sweets. I don't think so, said Jones as the phone kept ringing. Where the heck is Strickland? said Wendell. Wendell, put George on. Identify yourself. It's Matthias Jones. Oh, Matthias. George is yelling at Arnie Doers. Have him call me. See, 
Gianni stole some key and he just ran down the picket fence at Dr. Collins' old house. No. Isn't that the one you were looking at, Matthias? Any other damage? He dug up the lawn. I guess he cut the turn on Shore Road too sharp. Bye, Wendell. Jones turned to Coco. Arnie is an idiot. Like we don't already know that, Jonesy? Jones rubbed his temple. What time did I go to sleep? I was told by Bruno that you and Junior ended your last game at three. Hey, there's Tylenol in the bathroom drawer. Thanks, said Jones, retreating to the bathroom. He quickly threw three tablets in his mouth and washed them down with water. She wanted everyone to know that Maynard was Deverno's lover. Why? Looks that way, but you're telling me, Jonesy, that when she stripped down, she had stitches. I'm not sure. I was distracted. <laughs> no need to be sorry. I get it. The phone rang before Jones could answer. Matthias, said Strickland, out of breath. You all right, George? Oh, I was chasing Arnie. The truck is still wedged on the fence. He says he doesn't have the master key. Arnie would make up a story at the pearly gates. Wendell says your Godzilla BMW didn't come back to the Marlboro. Are you all right? I'm in Prince William. Look, George, Millicent McGuire may have opened up this whole case. How so? Records of dozens of boxes of chocolates being shipped by PW Credit Union to Darlene Deverno. Maynard? Right. Strickland's phone bounced around. Are you saying he was Boris? He and Bertie have a solid marriage. I don't know, but I wonder if the fingerprints on that tape from Holly Withers are his. Get back to Hamilton and we'll talk this thing through. Okay, George. Jones's phone rang again. Matthias. Strickland's voice vibrated in the speaker. Lester. Lester? asked Jones as Coco turned at the door. Fish face? cruiser and we're in pursuit of Muddy Jacobs's pickup truck down Shore Road. Only Muddy isn't in the truck. It's Lester Larson. I've called in for backup from Prince William and the state police. I'm on my way. He ran up to Coco and briefly held his forearm. Lester Larson is in Muddy Jacobs's truck and Strickland and Wendell are after him. That little goon tried to kill us, Jonesy. I wouldn't miss this one in a million years. Chapter 15, Shore Road Extension, Prince William, New Hampshire. Coco drove Bruno's blue truck through the grassy area along the bay. Jones was surprised Coco could still maneuver the truck at 60 miles an hour on the dirt road. Lester must know about this extension, said Jones. Sure he does, but don't discount his stupidity, Jonesy. Is there another way to get back to Hamilton? Through Toby Lake, but you need a dirt bike for that. Just narrow trails that come out south of town on Washington Street. He can't get away, said Jones, watching a red and black tanker move slowly in the distance across the bay. A tanker in tranquil Hamilton Bay. There's a terminal in Prince William. That's a major shipping lane out there. Coco shifted. How does that fish face actually think he's going to get away? Lester is slippery. Jones called Strickland on the speaker. But I agree. Strickland. We're almost in Hamilton along the bay, George. Well, don't bother looking for the truck because it's right here at Toby Lake. Well, what does Lester have to say for himself? Well, I don't know. 
What do you mean you don't know? Did you shoot him? asked Jones. Wendell left his cruiser running and... Coco shook his head and drove. He spoke in a lower voice. That fool Harris just let Fishface hijack his cruiser. We have an all points out for that cruiser. We'll look for the cruiser and not the truck. Jones hung up and Coco smiled. Harris is a buffoon. No argument here, Coco. Pearson from the FBI was tall, crotchety, and loud. He had a close-cut military haircut. Before Strickland suspended Wendell, Pearson kicked the dirt and pinned Wendell up against the car. Then he browbeat Muddy Jacobs inside the police station. Jones could sense that he and Strickland were next. He quickly placed a call to Mark Donovan at the FBI office in Indiana. Pearson stared at his phone as he emerged from the police station. Then he scowled at Jones all the way back to his blue sedan. He spotted Coco near the blue truck. As he rounded the sedan, Jones spoke up. Don't go there, Pearson. Pearson turned and pointed. I'll be watching you, Jones. You do that, guns, said Coco. You and your Boston buddies will go down, Stefani. He slid inside the sedan and an agent closed the door. Hey, guns, said Coco as Pearson turned. I'll be watching you, too. With Coco headed back to Prince William, Jones entered the station. Strickland looked up from behind his desk. If the FBI had stayed out of this, we might have had it solved. Who pressured them? asked Jones. Your guess is as good as mine. Pia had a dozen stitches below her shoulder, George. Strickland looked up. What? I wonder if she's type O. How do you know this? Inside information, and I have more. Oh, really? What? George, you need to either clear Maynard or question him. Strickland looked up from his desk. Maynard Hall is a respected member of this community and a cousin of Hamilton Fletcher. Well, this respected member of the community was apparently smitten with Darlene Devereaux, and Darlene Devereaux was murdered. Now Strickland stood with his hands on the desk. And then he became the slasher. Is that the implication? It follows. Wendell leaned his head in the door. Can I come in, George? Yes, Wendell, come in. Wendell removed his hat and moved slowly. I'm sorry, George. It's not your fault, Wendell. We both got out of our cruises and we both left the engines running. Lester is very wily, you know that. We need to find Lester and the cruiser, said Wendell. Strickland shook his head. Guns has shut us out of it. They won't find him, said Wendell. Guns can't stop you from getting Maynard's fingerprints, said Jones. Strickland walked around his desk. I'm not worried about guns. I'm worried about Hamilton Fletcher. What are you going to do, George? asked Jones. Herbert is in Bermuda, as we know. I can get one of the assistant DAs to give me his prints at the bank. All hell will break loose, but we have Charlie Post. Jones squinted. Charlie Post? He contracts out to Clayton's office. Charlie can compare the tape prints from the Club Max and Maynard prints. Just because Maynard may have sent candy to Devereaux doesn't mean he killed her. And somebody else from PW Credit could have sent the candy. Not what my gut is telling me. And I will question Pia. Where did she get those stitches? And what did she tell the ER or wherever she went? Interesting question, said Jones. What a mess, George, said Wendell as he headed down the hall toward the restroom. Jones stepped toward the door. Where are you going, Matthias? 
Just because you can't search for Lester doesn't mean I can't take a little trip around town. George! yelled Wendell from down the hall. Wendell, don't be talking to me while you're in the john. I'm not. Wendell looked from the end of the hall. Lester's locked in the cell. Strickland's eyes popped and Jones followed him down the hallway. Lester? asked Strickland. I waive my rights, said Lester. Wendell, leave a message for Hamilton Fletcher that Lester is in custody. Okay, George. Strickland turned. Lester, do you know how much trouble you're in? Affirmative. Why did you run? Friend. You tried to kill Coco and me, shouted Jones, stepping up to him. The warehouse was a police station. No, it wasn't, said Jones. Never mind that, yelled Strickland. First, what do you have to do with Darlene Devereaux's death? Lester gestured as if he were zipping his lips. Did you kill her and the others? Lester covered his lips. Strickland looked at the band-aid on his hand. You cut yourself on the razor, Lester. No, can at the dump, answered Lester. Well, you better get a good lawyer, because I think you and your dumb little motor scooter have been around all these murders of innocent women. Nihil novi! What the hell does that mean? The Latin translation is, said Jones, I know nothing. At least he finally decided to tell the truth. Strickland stepped forward. Lester, you can't even speak English. Why use that expression? Nihil novi! You're going to have to deal with the FBI, said Strickland. Good luck. Jones pointed at Lester. Let me ask you this, Lester. Were you anywhere near the Alouette Boutique when Darlene Devereaux was murdered? Nihil nove. Nihil nove. Do you have a lawyer? Negative. What do you know about Maynard Hall? Lester marched back to the bed. Owns a bank. He's the president of the bank, said Strickland. You saw him the night of the Devereaux murder, didn't you? Nihil nove. Strickland's phone rang. Jones and Strickland backed into the front office. Yes, Hamilton, he's in our cell. Nobody knows. What? I can't not tell the FBI and the Prince William police. LG, I don't know if LG will agree to defend Lester. Okay, then call me right back. What did he say, George? He wants LG here before the FBI and media arrive. That's not a bad idea for the image of the school, said Jones. Strickland's cell rang. Yes, LG. I'll wait. I need to get over to my office and prepare for the game. Strickland nodded. Call me after you know about Maynard's prints. Strickland put his hand to his forehead. That's a whole other issue. Sure. Jones leaned at the door. Nilhil Novi. Jones picked up a coffee and a BLT at the Colonial House. Franny told him she'd be at the game. Jones thanked her, but Maynard... Pia and Lester circled in a whirlwind inside his head. At his desk, he reviewed the plays and defenses he had practiced all week. In six hours, Norwich, who according to the scorebook had beat Hamilton seven times in a row, would pull up in their bus. None of Lark's teams had ever used the fast break against Norwich. He was confident his team was getting in better shape every day. An incoming call echoed around the office. Jones said Lark on another overseas line. Lark, how propitious. Oh, do you have to use the little boy's room? No, Lark. How's your trip going? asked Jones, flipping over one of his plays on the clipboard near the basket. We're in Bora Bora. Great. We've been 
skinny dipping all morning in Monster Lagoon. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. He did not dare tell Lark that Lester had been arrested. Flo forgot the copper tone. Well, don't get sunburned, Lark. Oh, don't need a hot tushy. Oh, boy. The reason I called is we're flying to Lima, and then to Miami, and then home to Hamilton. Lark, uh, I would take a few more weeks. Frankly, we're low on funds, old boy. I don't want to dip into my own personal accounts. Perhaps Hamilton has something in the rainy day fund. Lark, we have a uh, connection problem. Talk to you later. Jones stood and walked over to the large picture of Lark on the wall. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Cheap, cheap, cheap. His cell sounded less than ten seconds later. This is costing you money, Lark. This is Uncle Sam. They took the axe. Blood and annihilation. Why? If you only knew why I killed death over and over again. Jones checked the Prince William number on his phone. You don't fool me. I know what the axe is. It's a trophy. Why the play? Then the demon-inspired laughter echoed into the earpiece. Uh, uh, death arrives on Saturday night. The line went dead. Wait! After a few minutes of pacing around his office, Jones watched the play on his computer. He was far beyond trying to figure out the bizarre advancement of the ball into the end zone in the relationship to the psycho who had just called him again. Then he typed in Casa de Sol, California. The community, with its long, curled beach and rising mountains in the background, was dotted with towering palms and striking patches of green lawns and swimming pools. The azure ocean waves were banked very slowly inward from the endless Pacific. Paradise. Even though Casa de Sol was hundreds of miles from the 1982 game in Berkeley, Jones used the same search but put in the date of the play. He slowly began scrolling down. At the top of the next page was a story in The Guardian, a local newspaper, and it was about a murder. A man named Sam Richter had been slashed by his wife at a bar called The Gold Post on November 20, 1982. The murder occurred in front of his 10-year-old daughter, Sally, Yet the present-day victims were all women. Okay, Jones, he said as he paced. Is that Pia's real name? Or does it have anything to do with Maynard Hall? Fact, Maynard was having an affair with Darlene Devereaux. He glanced at the photo of his dad he had posted on the Cork bulletin board. Fact, Pia was close friends with Devereaux, and she had dropped just enough info for Jones to uncover the information about Maynard. Fact, Pierre knew about the prince and the affair, but never mentioned Maynard. Were Maynard and Pierre involved in some type of relationship? Did Maynard do her bidding, or was Pierre the slasher? He called Strickland. After some small talk, they began speaking about the slasher. Well, it certainly wasn't that goofball, Lester Larson. How do you know that? asked Strickland. George, the slasher called me again. Different number, Jones said, changing the screen on his phone. 603-555-3710. Wendell will trace this number. 603-555-3710. He 
He's on it, Matthias. It was straight from hell, laughing and threatening to kill me on Saturday night. I asked about the play and got no answer. Write this down, George. Blood and annihilation. If you only knew why I killed, I saw it all. I'll make an exception for you, Jones. I will slash your throat with a deadly precision. I'm sick. Maybe you should be armed. No, I'm fine. Well, whoever it is is trying to scare you. <laughs> They're doing a good job. Wendell will be at the game tonight. Thanks. Matthias, I think this play thing is nonsense. Oh, no, George. It's at the heart of the case. On November 20th, 1982, I'm certain the Cal-Stanford game was on a TV set in a bar called the Gold Post in Casa de Sol, California. Where Pierre is from. There was a murder by Reza in Casa de Sol during that game. A 10-year-old girl watched her mother kill her father with a straight razor. You're kidding. Her name was Sally Richter. George, you need to do a background check on Pierre. See if she was that 10-year-old girl. Easily done. George, that makes sense if she saw her father killed. I mean, if it is her. After a long silence, Strickland spoke. I have a warrant for Charlie Post to retrieve Maynard's fingerprints from the bank. We'll settle the tape thing this afternoon while the FBI questions Lester. Guns told the media the state police captured Lester. But Lester was in the cell when the slasher called me. He didn't do it. If you ask me, I think Maynard's prints on that tape would be very incriminating. Somehow Pia and Maynard and Deverno are a part of this love triangle. I'm bringing in Pia for questioning, but I'm keeping this hush-hush. Good work, Matthias. I don't know how all this comes together, but Lester didn't kill anybody. I think he was driving his motor scooter back when Deverno was murdered. I agree. Why did Lester turn himself in? Apparently, and I'm not 100% sure, but Arnie Dew has told him he was going to be shot on sight. I'd like to be in that posse, said Jones. He leaned back in Lark's old chair and almost fell over. I need a new chair. Are you all right? Lark's chair. Jones sat up straight. By the way... What? Lark is on his way back to Hamilton. He had to come back sometime. He's leaving Bora Bora. By outrigger canoe, I hope, said Strickland as Jones laughed. <laughs> Look, George, the boys will be here for the Norwich game in two hours. I'm going to finish my BLT. Let me know what's going on. I'll be across the street at the bank. I'm sure the fireworks will fly, said Strickland. We'll check that phone number and then head to the Cherokee. I'm just afraid the slasher will strike again. Chapter 16 Colonial House Restaurant, Hamilton, New Hampshire Franny sat across from Jones, with her legs facing the outside of the booth. Jones stared at her for a few seconds and held his knife and fork as he gazed into space. A medium-rare steak, a baked potato, and corn awaited him, but he couldn't eat. Thias, you look all stressed out. Is the Norwich game that important? It's not the game, Franny. Hmm, the slasher. Jones nodded. You're wondering if I can keep a secret because you really don't know me. Right-o, he said, smiling, using one of Lark's favorite phrases. Well, Lark, I can only tell you, if you can't be discreet, you're all done as a waitress. I understand. And if you did tell me what's wrong, it would be for me to help. I'm not Arnie Dewar's, the town gossip. Jones leaned his head back and laughed. Okay, I get it. 
Number one, Lester is in custody. Franny's face froze. How? Turned himself in. The FBI has him. Is he the slasher? I don't think so, which leads to my next tidbit, Maynard Hall. Maynard helped me get a mortgage for my house. Jones leaned forward. Are you sure you want to know? Of course. I'm just as nosy as Arnie, but I can keep my mouth shut. Maynard's prints are being checked by Charlie Post from the medical examiner's office as we speak, against the duct tape on Holly Withers' mouth when she was murdered at Club Max. Why? I'm pretty sure he was sending Darlene Deverneau dozens of boxes of chocolates from Donnelly's. What? Franny leaned forward and whispered, You think he killed her? We'll see. And? There's more? Pia. She's a high-powered model, or was. Pia has, I think, stitches below her right shoulder. Franny raised her index finger. The other blood from the killer at Club Max. I keep thinking that, and she was from California. The Cal-Stanford game took place in California. Location doesn't mean anything. I have new information of a murder in a bar during that game. A little girl looked on as her mother slashed her father with a razor. Franny leaned forward and whispered, Pia, is that little girl? I think so, and I think she may have had Maynard do her dirty work. Maynard never liked me, and my looking into this might be the reason why. I need to separate the slasher from the game, he said, looking at his watch. You will once it starts. Plus, I know who the killer is. Who? asked Jones. Well, Froggy Finley, of course. He did try to confess, probably to protect his buddy, Lester. Feel better now? As a matter of fact, I do, Franny. I'll see you at the game. You will. An hour and a half later, Strickland's phone call came in as Arnie Dewar's entered Jones's office. Preparing for your first loss? asked Arnie. Science, it's George. Why don't you keep your big mouth shut? What did I say? asked Strickland. Sorry, George, Arnie just walked in. I fully understand. Arnie lit a cigarette. Hey, everybody's a loser sooner or later. With you, Arnie, it's sooner. He swung the phone around. What have you got, George? Jones nudged Arnie into the locker room and closed the office door. Well, I know the game is about to start, but a lot of things have happened this afternoon. Pia hasn't been seen at the Cherokee since yesterday. I talked to the doorman and the manager. No one has seen her. Is she officially a suspect? Not at this point. Just a person of interest, according to guns. What about the background? It's very strange. It's as if somebody has gone into Sally Richter's records. She just disappears off all records, everywhere, in 1985. She needs to be questioned. Pia witnessed her father's murder at the goalpost. I'm sure of it. Sally Richter's records have been expunged. How? asked Jones. You pay money, you get records changed. Number two, Charlie Post just got a copy of Maynard's prints at the main branch. Oh, really? With the court order, easily. Did he talk to Maynard at the bank? That's trouble, said Jones. Maynard is furious, according to the three voicemails I have from Hamilton Fletcher. We'll see what Hamilton does if the prints match. All hell will break loose. Wendell saw Maynard heading over the Devonshire's toward Prince William about 20 minutes ago. 
Where is he going? PWPD is following him in unmarked cruises, but there's more. What do you mean? Lester escaped from FBI custody. Impossible. Come on, George. That's insane. Happened on the Crosstown Bridge. Apparently, he jammed something in the cuffs earlier, and he leaped out the door at 60 miles an hour. Is he still alive? He dove over the edge. He what? Down into the girders. They can't find him. Guns think that he jumped into the river. Credible, said Jones. I'll call you back when Charlie completes the examination of both sets of prints. Did you ever think Pierre and Maynard may be in cahoots? asked Jones. Strickland assumed an official-sounding voice. We'll question both of them. If you can find either of them, I'll talk to you after the game, George. Jones hung up and Arnie opened the office door. So you got the prince of the slasher, asked Arnie. How could you have heard that conversation, Arnie? I have canine hearing. Yeah, and canine thinking. What did you do? Open the door with your key? I told you, I ain't got no key. Yeah, 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 said Jones, imitating Arnie. I don't. Arnie, don't you have work to do? Nah, it's Saturday. On Saturday, I relax. Arnie, every day is Saturday for you. Hey, I like that, said Arnie, as Jones again plowed him out of the office and locked the door. Arnie's voice was squelched through the glass. Now that you nailed the slasher, you can start coaching and earn your pay. Arnie, shut up. You won't be so pushy when the new security guy gets here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, this guy's a tough guy from New York City. Good, maybe he'll throw you off campus. The Hamilton Gym's overflow crowd followed the game from the lobby. With a 15-point lead deep into the fourth quarter, Jones exhaled. For the entire game, Jones had scanned the stands for Maynard. Arnie Dewars and Muddy Jacobs had been yelling out insults. Jones stood during the timeout and pointed at Arnie. You're about two seconds from being banned from the game, Arnie. What about me? asked Muddy, making a clown face. Both of you. Big talk, laughed Arnie. Jones signaled Wendell down near the lobby. He moved down the sidelines. Wendell, you need to get Arnie and Muddy out of here. I don't want to have to listen to their nonsense every game. Unless they use profanity, they did. Well, we'll see about that. As Jones went back to his team and sent them out on the floor, Wendell removed Arnie and Muddy from the bleachers. To Jones' surprise, the entire crowd, including the Norwich side, rose and gave a standing ovation. Muddy tipped his cap and the obnoxious Arnie bowed. In three minutes, the game was over. Jones was center floor with his team and coach Skip Evans from Norwich shook his hand. Hamilton was always a sure win, said Skip. Sorry to disappoint you there, Skipper. Good job. Jones's cell rang. He debated whether to answer it until he saw Strickland's name on the screen. George. Charlie says the Prince match. We have issued a warrant for Maynard. Wow, exclaimed Jones as he saw Franny and held up his index finger. What do you mean, warrant, George? Where is he? Maynard is nowhere to be found. I thought they picked up his trail in Prince William. He disappeared along the docks, and now I have Hamilton Fletcher summoning me to Fletcher Hill tomorrow morning. That's not good. He's going to unload on you. Oh, let him. I heard you won. How did you hear that? Wendell, after he threw Muddy and Arnie out on your instructions. Congratulations on both the win 
the ejections. Arnie was too much. He usually is. I still can't believe Maynard's prints are on that tape from Holly. It's the one side of the tape that bothers me. Most of the crowd had moved away from Jones and edged toward the lobby doors. He'll be booked as soon as we catch him. He can't get far. Let me know about him or Pia, said Jones. Could be that Pia had the records changed as a celebrity. Jones paused. Or because she didn't want people to know that she was that little girl. We'll clear it up. Guns can do that. And thanks for the Donnelly's angle, Matthias. Maynard left an incriminating trail. No one realizes, in the middle of their daily routine, George, that they might be incriminating themselves. Only a few people remain when Jones ran into the almost empty gym a few minutes later. Well, that was quick, said Franny. No shower. Franny held her nose and Jones laughed. Thanks for waiting. Break in the case? Jones smiled and spoke in a lower voice. Maynard's prints were on the duct tape, one side of it anyway. He wasn't at the game. No, he's on the run. They all are, said Jones as they crossed the lobby. Maynard is so sure of himself. He'll be charged when they find him. And Hamilton Fletcher has left a few huffy voicemails for George. Oh, I'm glad I'm not George, she said as they stepped into the cooler outside air. He'll try and he'll get George fired for matching those prints. Let me tell you something, Franny. If he gets George fired... Then I'm on the first plane back to Wabash Corners. They walked along the gym outside near the library. Would you really? Absolutely. I'm going to respect Hamilton's power, but I won't be his puppet. Hear, hear, said Franny, clapping. Wish the rest of the town felt that way. Jones hit his forehead. My phone. It's back on my office desk. I'll wait. Oh, no. You're coming back inside. It's Saturday and the slasher still hasn't been caught. Jones brought her back securely into the gym. Franny sat on the bleacher seats as Jones zipped across the gym to the locker room corridor. He turned on the overheads and saw the phone face up on his desk. Maynard could not, even with his money, escape a full FBI and state police search. He scooped up the phone and walked briskly back into the gymnasium. Franny, he called out but did not see her in the bleachers. He rushed into the lobby and checked the outside parking lot through the windows. Have you seen Franny? He asked Norman Eddy, the janitor, sweeping up the lobby. Haven't seen her, coach. During the game, I saw her. Thanks, Norman. Jones returned to the window. The well-lit parking lot had a few parked cars, but everyone had left after the game. He ran back into the gym and looked where she had been sitting. His heart pounded as he turned. Franny casually walked from the girls' locker room at the far end of the gym. Jones met her halfway. Don't need the disappearing act, Franny, with the slasher out there. Nature calls. Jones smiled. I would like some chocolate cake and milk at the Colonial House. Arnie was right about you. Well, what did he say? Never mind. Come on, Franny. What words of wisdom hearken from Mr. Dewes's trap? He said you were a goody-two-shoe. They reached the lobby and returned to the parking lot. Coming from a guy who walks around with his sneakers tied together. Does he? That wouldn't surprise you, would it? Asked Jones as they crossed the parking lot. Nothing about Arnie surprises me, said Franny. So I hear you're renting a Beamer from Godzilla. Better than the van. I need to look for a real car. They walked down the asphalt walkway near the brick library. What do you want to drive? What do you drive, Franny? A little Subaru, but you need something else. 
I was thinking Jeep. Good, you can off-road while you're on the beach. As she spoke, Jones sensed something behind him. Shadows traced the pavement as if someone swung a pole or a bat. He was able to duck at the last second, and the force impacted his shoulder. As he fell to the ground, the hooded attacker in a trench coat grabbed Franny. The razor was blunt and rusted. With his shoulder throbbing, Jones scrambled into a crab run. As if he were tackling an opposing player, he plowed into the slasher, his other shoulder smacking the killer just below the knee. The slasher's body became airborne and then bounced off the walkway. Jones, still in pain, rolled to the left. Franny spun away, but the razor was still ensconced in the killer's black glove. As Jones attempted to get on his feet, the killer sat up and slowly drew the razor upward toward the turtleneck. Don't do it, cried Jones, but the killer brought the razor swiftly to the neck. Blood spurted through the slice in the fabric, and a massive dark puddle soon formed on the asphalt. Franny stood back with her hands over her mouth. Jones crawled to the fallen form, the hood crushed in blood and a facial stocking cap over the head. He reached out and slowly peeled the cap back over the smooth neck and soft lips. Pia's eyes were closed and her mouth open. The razor's white ivory handle was still tight in her glove. Jones looked up. Are you all right, Franny? Franny nodded. It's over, Franny. The slasher is dead. Cross Town Bridge, Prince William, New Hampshire. As they zoomed over the Crosstown Bridge, Jones turned to Coco inside Coco's BMW. Coco, why are you going over the bridge toward Newtown? I'm supposed to meet Hamilton Fletcher. You got time. Coco checked his watch again and accelerated toward Newtown. Coco, I have to be at Fletcher Hill exactly at 3 o'clock. Don't worry about it, Jonesy. Easy for you to say. The old man told me Hall's wife is divorcing him. Jones looked over the valley on the other side of the Devonshire Hills. He hates me for having exposed the affair as well as having him as a suspect. Him and his chocolate boxes. I'm sure he does. You proved that Hall was playing around with Devereaux. Guns Pearson, wherever he was reassigned, hates me too. Ah, join the club. I hope he's in northern Alaska. Pia wanted Maynard. Devereaux was in the way. She compulsively couldn't help herself. Somehow she knew Maynard was helping Devereaux ship out special orders, and his prints were on the shipping tape. Maynard's an idiot. He let himself get conned by Pia, said Coco. Came close to getting indicted. Herbert Lane is still taking credit for forcing the Grigio out in the open and finding that second scooter in the self-storage unit here in Prince William. Herbert did find the scooter. Big deal, Jones said, looking at his own watch. Coco, you're deliberately driving me around. What, are you afraid of the old man? No, I just don't want to be late. Relax. There's a mountain road. I'll show you the way back to Route 7. Okay, Coco, what's up? You just passed Fletcher Drive. You'll see. They moved by a swamp and then a hillside of apple trees. Jones half smiled. We're heading to the center of town. Very good, Jonesy. You know, I have to give it to the little runt. He's able to break out of jails in an FBI car. Three weeks and no sign of Lester. Wendell's cruiser was found at Dewar's Lumber. I think Arnie Dewar's got him out of town, maybe on the train. 
Old man Lawson better not find out that his son is public enemy number one. Hamilton Fletcher took care of that. He told Lark that his son was a special agent and is secretly on assignment. Right, and Lawson bought it. If it keeps him quiet, who cares? They reached the top of the hill just before the college. The town common ahead was already packed with cars. A crowd stood outside the Colonial on the corner of Shore Road. A red jeep was parked along the white picket fence out front. I don't believe it. Believe it. I told you. If you're on the old man's good side, he'll treat you like a prince. Am I going to be living in that house? Jones leaned toward the windshield as Coco drove closer. And is that my jeep? You're all set, Jonesy. Coco swung the BMW toward the curb in front of the shiny jeep. Franny, Gallagher, and McGill stood with a few Hamilton professors. Hamilton Fletcher, Ham, and an athletic, blonde-haired man gathered on the shore roadside. Even Arnie and Muddy wore open-collared sports coats. Jones stepped out of the car as they applauded. This is incredible! Tom McGill and his wife, Susan, shook his hand. Thanks for all that information on Pierre, said McGill. You were the guy to write it, Tom. Looks as if Hamilton approves of your coaching, Matthias, said Susan. I'm stunned, said Jones, as he leaned inside the Jeep with its new car smell. I was just telling my Aunt May last night. I wasn't sure whether the Fletchers were upset with me. You're in like Flint, said McGill. I love this house. Well, you should, said Father Gallagher to his left. It's nicer than the rectory. I don't know, Matthias, said Strickland in a low voice. That rectory is pretty posh. Who's watching the store, George, or need I ask? Wendell has promised not to get into trouble. Keep your fingers crossed. Hey, Franny Wanny, yelled Arnie, cupping his hands. How about a date? Buzzed off, Arnie. Feisty, said Arnie as Muddy laughed. <laughs> Jones spotted the dark-haired Jimmy Botafino and his parents. Thanks for coming. I'll bring you around campus later. Enough of this idle chit-chat. Everyone, over here said Hamilton Fletcher in a booming voice. He moved to the curb in front of the jeep. Juanita, Hollings, champagne all around. Franny handed Jones a full glass of champagne. Here you go, coach. Thank you, Franny. The entire group of at least a 100 people formed a semicircle on Main Street outside the curb. First, began Hamilton Fletcher, let me introduce your new assistant, Carl Rogers. Coach, it's pleasant to meet you, said the wide-shouldered Carl. Sure we've got a lot of games ahead of us, said Jones, wishing Woozy Williams was standing there. A man with an unshaven toad face and bulging blue eyes pushed by Carl and slapped a piece of paper in Jones's hand. His tongue kept moving out and then retracting. Who the hell are you? asked Jones. I'm Smitty. You owe me $759. You owe me money for the gym lights. My uncle is Pat Ruckel's house, so there. Who? Head groundskeeper at the Eternal Rest Cemetery in Prince William, so don't try anything. I'll make a note of it, said Jones, crumbling the invoice and moving toward Hamilton Fletcher. Now, I am extremely happy to have you on behalf of my family, the college, and the town to be standing right here. You have taken the basketball team from last to a second-place finish. Well done, well done. Arnie whistled from the side. 
Watch it, doers, or I'll make another call to the state police, said Hamilton, pointing at Arnie. Hey, I gave all the keys back to him, said Arnie, turning to Muddy. They shook me down, Muddy. Hamilton stepped forward again. Now this old colonial, built in 1763, formerly known as the Collins House, is now the Matthias Jones House. Thank you, said Jones, waving. And as my son Ham has told me, Matthias needs wheels. Ham raised his champagne glass, and Jones gave him the thumbs up. Mr. Fletcher, I'm so grateful I decided to come back to Hamilton. Hamilton pointed at Coco in the rear, and Coco winked. And thank you for beefing up the coaching staff. We have a lot of work ahead of us. Building an organization takes time. But with the way these boys have performed, with dedication and perseverance, we're well on our way. We'll break from the past and we'll make Hamilton College the college it deserves to be. As Jones spoke, a backfire sounded on Shore Road. Someone yelled and a short, pudgy man with glasses ran forward yelling. He pulled up his Bermuda shorts over a rounded sports shirt and adjusted his glasses and blew a brass whistle. Everyone on the sidewalk, let's go before I have to get mad. Who the hell is this clown? Well, that's Bucky Driscoll, our new campus security man, said Hamilton Fletcher. Bucky looked up at Coco. Move your butt, buddy. Go play in traffic, moron, replied Coco. Oh, yeah? You don't scare me. I'm an A1 classified traffic control expert. You're an A1 idiot. Jones looked ahead. Down the long stretch... Lark's brown bomber chugged up Shore Road as Froggy Finley raced by in his orange Mustang. If you're an A1 traffic expert, Bucky, said Jones, you look down Shore Road. Huh? Larson's heading this way, Jonesy, said Coco. Lark's car backfired as Froggy howled and squealed the tires down the asphalt. Lark drifted toward the side of Shore Road. Clear the deck! Clear the deck, screamed Bucky. Clear the deck. Everyone move toward the college, said Jones as the crowd rapidly drifted away from Shore Road in the front lawn. What the hell is this? asked Hamilton Fletcher, now down the street with the crowd. Jones scrambled with Father Gallagher amidst the gasps and screams as a gaggle of people now stampeded away from Jones's house and on to Main Street. With his hands on his hips, Bucky remained dumbfounded on the lawn, watching the oncoming vehicle. Lark, babbling behind the wheel, leaned toward his girlfriend and tore up the dirt in front of the Abervite trees. But the old car kept rolling, crashing into the newly repaired picket fence, splintering picket after picket to the ground and nearly hitting the gawking Bucky. The car slid to a stop, cutting a deep tire crevice across the grass. Heh, <laughs> too much bubbly said Bucky, pretending he was taking a drink. Lark continued to grip the wheel as the dust slowly rose in front of the house and the radiator steamed. Jones and Gallagher stepped toward the car. Hamilton Fletcher pushed through the stunned crowd. Larson, you bumbling jackass! What have you got to say for yourself, you bozo? Whoa, ass over tea kettle, Flo. Home again, home again. Jiggity jig. Jones turned to Gallagher. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh,
I debated whether to put this lengthy epilogue of the Prince William Slasher onto the book and into the audiobook. This does serve a purpose for the series. Jones gets his colonial on the corner, his Jeep, and Bucky Driscoll, the bumbling security cop, is appointed by Hamilton Fletcher in this epilogue. Next week we'll be switching back to a, I would call it a time travel book, but maybe a multi-worlds theory book called A World Without Her. Timelines change radically. That's next week. I'm Robert P. Fitton, hopping on the plane to New York, and I'll see you next week. Ciao. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.